It's time for Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group with financial advisors Kevin Corhorn, Mike Bernard, and Josh Gregory. Welcome to another episode of the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group, where every week we're helping you take your next wise step in your financial life. Thanks for being here, friends. My name is Mike Bernard. I'm your host. I'm also one of the CFPs on the program with me in the KFG studios, my business partners and fellow CFPs, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Today on the Wise Money Show, we're discussing the three ways that the assets you own will pass to the people or places you care about when you pass away. What do these estate planning techniques mean for your financial life and how do you structure your assets? We're going to answer those questions and more in the coming hour. Well said, Joshua. Well said. Look forward to getting into that. If you have questions for the program, we'd love to hear from you. We're actually kicking off this entire topic with a question from a fan of the show. You can reach out to us a few different ways. Call or text 574-222-2000. That's 574-222-2000. Online, wisemoneyshow.com. You can submit questions that way or through social media, Facebook, YouTube, wherever you're at, we're there as well. Search the Wise Money Show. All right. So like Josh said, and like I said, here's here's the question we got from a fan of the show. Uh, do I need, do I need, do I have to add a beneficiary to my 401k? What happens if I don't list one? And I thought, well, great question. I don't know if you've ever had that question. As we, as our retirement plans department, Corey Johnson, Ben Chambers, and and Kim Palsgrove, the fabulous team that we have here, as they're going out and educating, um, you call them plan participants. That's the jargon-free zone, or that's the jargon for <laughs> uh, people that contribute to a 401k, employees. They're saying one of the decisions you need to make is who's your beneficiary. And I love the emphasis on that. It's a fair question to say, well, what happens if I don't even list one? We're gonna we're gonna answer that question. But first, let's let's take it up a notch. Let's go, let's go, let's zoom out and just say, well, listen, how do assets transition anyway? Yeah. You know, we get a lot of questions about this all the time. In fact, I had family members over the holidays just kind of asking hey, what about this scenario? What if this is, people don't always know, yeah, what happens with assets when a family member passes away or someday when it's you that passes away? You want to know that you've got all your ducks in a row, so to speak? I don't speak. know if I'd call that good holiday uh, chatter. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It really I, wasn't. I, listen, listen, if that's you, here's a li- here's a suggestion. Make a list on some index card of, of conversation starters, <laughs> just so you're prepared in advance. Because if the conversation just naturally goes to what happens if I die, <laughs> you've run out of things to talk about. That's right. But, it's time to, to, time to go home, I think. Yeah. No, um, you, you know, this, this topic of how do things pass when you pass away, the first one, and I'm going to go all in on jargon here, even though we try to make this a jargon-free zone, the, the, the phrase that I would use is that one method of passing assets to your loved ones is by using what's called the operation of law. And what that really means is there are just some laws that are baked into common law, into state statutes, even into federal laws that basically just say, this is how it has to go. Whether you you know want it to or not, this is just how, how the law operates. And an example of that, probably the best example, is when you own something jointly with your spouse. Yeah. So, you know, if you and your spouse own your home together, for example, and one of you passes away, we don't have to sit here and wonder about what the wishes were of that deceased spouse 
Um, you know, what, what did they want to have happen to the house? The fact that they owned it jointly means they intended for it to go to the surviving joint owner, which is their yeah. surviving spouse. And uh, you, again, we don't have to get attorneys involved. We don't have to go to court. There's no probate in, involved here. It is actually a very efficient way for assets to pass when you can have joint ownership in place. That's right. So, so yeah, typically as you're looking at your assets and thinking, well, how would this cascade? How would this transition if something happened to one of us? Yeah. Stuff that your assets that should be owned jointly, own them jointly. And, and you know, the one houses are, are fairly easy unless it's a, well, I own this house before I got married or something like that, then you might want to clean it up. Vehicles are the ones that get people a little a little backwards because I don't know about you guys. I hate buying cars. <laughs> it's inconvenient as well. Gosh, how long am I going to be there? What are they going to try and talk me into? I don't, you know. I, so uh, typically it's like, okay, and, and you've got the kids as well. So yeah. a lot of times, in families, just one person will buy the car. Well, now it's not held jointly. It's just held by mm-hmm. one person. And does that throw a, a, a screwball into your entire estate plan? No, but it's not clean. Anything that you can't hold joint, that you should hold joint, yeah. I would. I can tell you this. If you are the owner of your car, it's highly likely that your spouse will be unhappy when they go to the BMV, wait for three hours, and try <laughs> to get something done. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> No, that's that's good. Well, so this question was sparked again by someone who was asking about their 401k. A 401k, by definition, cannot be an asset that is owned jointly, Yeah. right? So you can't use operation of law to pass down a, a 401k to your loved ones. Uh, the second option, though, available to you is to pass things by contract. And an example of this would be life insurance. Um, if you pass away, you have, if you have life insurance in place, you've literally signed a contract with an insurance company that says, if I pass away, you are contractually obligated to pay this death benefit to the loved ones that I've named as beneficiaries on this account. Um, the same thing happens when you open up investment accounts or other assets, you're signing a contract. And if it allows you to name a beneficiary on that account, you're baking it into the contract essentially that if you pass away, this other entity, this account uh, holder, the bank, the, the investment company, whatever, they will then pass the assets to the people that you've designated as a beneficiary. So, and we're going to come back to the question here of, well, what if I didn't list one? You know, with 401ks, with IRAs, and by the way, that, that I in IRA or IRA, as if you might want to call it that, don't call it that. I Please don't. Yeah. Um, is for individual, so you, you can't hold, you can't have a joint IRA. Um, but uh, th- yeah, that beneficiary paperwork is built right in, and we'll we'll explain well what happens if you didn't fill it out. But some other investment accounts, it's not built right in. That's right. And you've got to. I mean, th- this is this is uh, very important. If you've got a CFP they should have looked through all of your assets and said, all right, which of these should be owned jointly and which of them should have a contract? Because both of those are just very easy to administer and the, the transition process. Yeah, it's, it's quick and easy paperwork on the front end, and it saves so much time and effort, energy and frustration and on money. the back end. And, and money. money, right? That, that's right. So there are some accounts that just don't naturally have beneficiaries available on them. Bank accounts typically don't. 
and many uh, just straight brokerage accounts or mutual funds and things. But you can add something known as a transfer on death designation. This is a way to name a beneficiary and attach it to that account. Or in the banking world, they call it a payable on death designation. Either one accomplishes the same thing. And it, it basically puts you in a position where if you were to pass away still owning that account, it will now go to the named beneficiaries um, that you set up ahead of time. And again, it goes so easy, so efficiently. And as you said, saves a lot of money. So it doesn't matter with these contracts. It doesn't matter if you have a side piece of paper or a will or you you know did a pinky swear or whatever and said, okay, when I pass away, you're going to get this money. No, it's going to whoever you listed as the beneficiary in the contract. That's how it works. And we've all seen crazy stories. We can share some here coming up if you want of, well, uh, the beneficiary was my first spouse and I got remarried. And then when I passed away, it actually, you know, went to that first spouse, my ex-spouse, as opposed to my current spouse. And so, you know, it, 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 your, whoever you list in those contracts, that supersedes any other, like those are taken as your intention. So those are two of the three ways that assets will transition when you pass away. There's a lot of planning that goes into this as well. So that more coming up on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. How do your assets transition if something happens to you? When you pass away, who gets what? How, what's the process like? What's the cost like? We're helping you with that right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Uh, stay up to date on all Wise Money content. Find us online at wisemoneyshow.com. You can submit questions right there, link to the YouTube channel, link to podcast, whatever. Um, and then, yeah, all over social media, wherever you're at, we are there as well. Search the Wise Money Show and follow us there. All right, we're talking about, we, we had a question from fan of the show saying, do I need, do I need to list a beneficiary on my 401k? What happens if I don't list a beneficiary? And I don't know if they meant, because I don't, I, you know, I'm not married yet and I don't have kids. I'm not sure who I would list. Um, so we're getting into that. But before we answer that question, it's just, how do assets pass, period? When, when you pass away, what happened? Mm -hmm. We've hit the first two. Let's get into the third. Yeah, if you're just joining the show uh, in the last segment, we said that the, the first way that assets get passed are by operation of law. The law says it has to go a certain way, and it automatically flows that way. Joint ownership of, of a house is a good example of that. And the second was to pass by contract. And this is when you get to name a beneficiary, and by contract that bank account or that investment or whatever uh, will automatically pass to the people you've named as beneficiary. If you don't use those two, then automatically everything's going to flow to the third unless you take other action that we'll talk about later in the show. Um, the, the third option is that it's going to pass by your will. And if you don't have a will, then it's the, the, the state that you live in, they have one for you, essentially. They have what are known as intestacy laws, intestacy meaning you just died without a will and that they decide then ultimately uh, based on those laws who gets what um, based on relationship and, and things like that so the the problem with things passing through a will is now you have to open up an estate you have to probate that estate 
probate is kind of a dirty word in some areas of the country because it's an expensive word. Mm-hmm. That's just really the, the court's process of validating your will and making sure this really was the will and overseeing the administration of it, basically selling things, dividing them up, passing them to the, the people named in your will. Ideally, you won't have things that get all the way down to number three, though. Mm-hmm. Because you want to avoid that cost. You want to avoid that hassle for the people that you love and are leaving this, this money behind to. So we encourage people, use number one, use number two. And that's exactly what this listener was asking about with their 401k. You know, do I have to name a beneficiary? You don't have to. But if you don't, then you're relying on this third option when number two could have been wonderful for you. So you're, you're, you're baiting me right into the, the next question. That is, is there one of these that's better than the others or is there one that's worse than the others? But let me just tell you, going back, and my father might not enjoy me sharing this story. But Kevin, you probably remember this. So I was really close with my grandfather, shared the same birth, birthday, and uh, he's just the most incredible person ever. In my last conversation with him, I didn't know it was my last. We had lunch together. And he grew up poor and uh, never had much, but uh, worked long and hard and had a pension and Social Security, and that's what they lived on. Well, I didn't know this, but I had just become a financial advisor. And at lunch, he told me he had squirreled away uh, $100,000 about um, in in the Old Kent Bank stock, which if you're from Grand Rapids or West Michigan, you certainly are familiar with Old Kent, turned into Fifth Third. And so he had this stock, and I was like, well, Grandpa – you got to do something with that. Do you have a will? Do you have it? And he was like, no. And he kind of gave me this look and I'm like, you got to get that figured out. Okay. And I, you know, you got to get it figured out. And so, you know, a few months later he died of a heart attack. And so he had started to put some things in motion there, but it didn't get it all done. Hmm. And I remember when my dad, so that hundred thousand went through the estate. I remember when my dad got the bill from the attorney for four grand. And he blew a top. <laughs> I'm just gonna tell you, it was it was one it was like one chunk of shares of stock. That's it. There's no house or anything like that. Like this is it. There's just this one this one little asset that needed to transition. And the attorney, you know, had a flat fee, certain percentage of the assets that go through probate. Mm-hmm. And my dad lost it mm-hmm. and ended up having words with that attorney, and they smoothed it over. But yes, probate can be an ugly ugly term and ugly process at times. Um, so now there's work involved. I mean, that, that's why. And then how do you charge for that work? And fairly, I, I don't know. You know, it's that's not technical up to me. work. It's complicated. It doesn't make any sense, but probate, there is something good about probate. It's the, the idea is probation. Like this money is supposed to go someplace, but we're going to put it on probation and we're going to notify everyone we can, because if anyone has a claim or their creditors out there, we want those folks to be satisfied before this money gets in the hands of whoever's supposed to eventually get it. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's very interesting to me when you when you talk to folks and you say, hey, do you have an estate plan? And they say no. Well, the answer is yes, you do. It's just the state plan, the estate plan that's been created by the federal government and the state in which you live. And it's very costly and it takes a lot of time mm-hmm. and it's frustrating process and you might not their process might line might not line up with your intentions. So, okay, so let's go back to this. Those are the three ways that assets pass. Josh, is there one that's better? Is there one that's worse? I think you sort of alluded to it. We all, you know, the three of us sort of know the answer, but you want to avoid probate at all costs. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> your horror story there yeah. uh, is a great example. And unfortunately, it happens more than you would think, where a, a lot of someone's estate either gets burned up unnecessarily in administrative costs or gets exposed to creditors and it didn't really need to be. So yeah. I might say it a little different. Mm-hmm. There might be. I might. I say, would have said it a little yeah, differently as well. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of avoiding probate at all costs, I would say the the things that are easily transferred by order of contract. So if I've got that old Kent stock, I can put a. I can do a transfer on death, and basically what I've done is I've just named a beneficiary to that. It, depending on the state that you're in, you can name a beneficiary to your house. You can name a beneficiary to your bank account. There are lots of things that you can do, and and it used to be, you know, referred to if you were if you were married, you owned everything jointly, and that was called the poor man's estate plan. But the reality is that works. The estate plan really is set up for the second death, mm-hmm. and so this is where you still want to make sure. And, and for our purposes, we believe that you want to have the, the proper estate planning documents in place so that no matter what happens, you, you know, you've got a contingency for your contingency and everything is going to work. But with the, with the stock, and there are lots of folks that have uh, an individual stock that, uh, you know, they used to work at a company or they used to have life insurance with this company and they that, that company demutualized, so they've got some stock. So they have these danglers out there in their financial life. I'm like, oh, my, fix those while you feel like doing it. Right. Because yeah. if you leave that job to the folks who come behind you, it's going to be time-consuming and that could end up being costly. Um, if you assign a value to your time, it's costly to begin with, but it could also have a financial cost associated to it. Well, especially because they may have to do a whole bunch of detective work just to understand the lay of the land in your <laughs> your estate, right? Like they, they may see some little tax document that gives them a clue there's something hanging out there. Now they've got to go research, figure out what was this? Did they still own it? Oh, yeah. Whereas you know, it, you know, it, it, maybe you've forgotten, but mm-hmm. you ought to know what is the I don't know, the structure of your assets and where is everything held? There's nothing better than closing an estate and everything's done. And then the client comes in and says, hey, dad got this dividend check in the mail. Mm, Oh, shoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want to have it set up. You want to have it planned out. You want to have it, you know, and planning it doesn't need to be this morbid and just awful process. It's just being proactive. And family members and loved ones, they appreciate that. And it gives you that peace of mind, that confidence and all of that. So we're going to go back to the question here in just a, in just a minute. Go back and say, okay, well, then what happens to your to, to an asset that should pass by contract if you didn't list someone? Okay, so how does that work? And then how does a revocable living trust fit into all of this? And how would you know if that's something you should consider or not? So lots more to come on the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. All right. So there's three ways that your assets transition when when you pass away. How does a revocable living trust fit into that equation? Should you have one? Okay. What's it do to those three choices or options? So that's where we're hitting right now. This is the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard. With me in the KFG studios, Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on the YouTube channel. Go check it out. Go to YouTube, search the Wise Money Show, subscribe to it, turn on notifications. We we drop a lot of content there. 
lots of videos and and uh, content to help you take your next wise step in your financial life. So go to YouTube, search Wise Money Show, subscribe to it, turn on notifications. We appreciate that. All right, so we talked about the three different ways that your assets will transition, would transition when something happens to you, when you pass away. How is how's a revocable living trust fit into all of that, Josh? Well, a revocable living trust, I'd emphasize, well, every single one of those words, I guess, matters. But the living part of this, it is a living document that you put in place while you're still alive. And you actually transfer the ownership of assets into this trust that basically acts as an extension of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The trust is set up with a trustee and you are the trustee typically unless you, you know, fall into ill health or can no longer manage your own affairs, then you have backups in place and they would step in on your behalf. But the point of the trust is to manage assets for your benefit because you're also the beneficiary of your own trust typically for, for while you're living. The whole point of this though, is it's a mechanism so that when you're done being that trustee and when you're done being the beneficiary of, of the trust, you also name in it who then will be the recipients of what's left over at the end of your life. Mm-hmm. So in, in many ways, a trust almost resembles what people think of a, a will. It's where you can name who your beneficiaries are and, and how the assets will pass to them. It's especially important when you have young children who could potentially inherit money from you and they're either not legally ready or not, uh, they don't have the competence or the character or they're just not fully developed to be able to handle the kind of money that you might leave behind. A trust is a way to name a trustee to care for it for their benefit when you're no longer here. Mm -hmm. So the point though is it is another one of the mechanisms to avoid that third option for how assets pass at your death. You can avoid probate. You can avoid opening up a, an estate and have things pass through your will if you use the first two we talked about in earlier segments or you utilize one of these trusts uh, effectively. I, I've thought that uh, of the revocable living trust as sort of like another contract, right? Sure. So, uh, so um, assets will pass by operation of law. Think joint account. Um, by contract, think I've added a beneficiary or through your will, if you have one or intestacy laws. But if you, if it makes sense for you to have a revocable living trust, it's essentially creating another contract. Right. And, and this show is not about should I, or should I not trust? But I (laughs) I think it is important to think, why would I have a revocable living trust? One of the reasons is, is that it avoids probate, as we said, but there's also, there's the, the, the privacy uh, and yeah, so you're with things that pass through your will are a matter of public record. And if you say, hey, I don't want everyone and their brother to know my private matters, then you have a, you set up a revocable living trust. Now, think operating system. So the operating system for your financial life, the rails that you're running on is the revocable living trust. So there's there is some administration that you need to do to get that done. But for a lot of folks, that's worth it. Um, especially with the, the the sunsetting of the estate tax uh, amounts coming mm-hmm. up here soon, um, and so there's there are some there are some benefits to consider uh, whether if you wanted to have a um, trust. So the question then is, and we're, this is not the primary topic of today's program, but do you need a trust 
or not? And I wouldn't, if we're not going to answer that, I would tell you how to answer it. And that is working with your certified financial planner. That's yeah. that's not going to the attorney because the attorney might ask you a couple things about your assets and the makeup and everything like that, but they're not, they're not constructing a full plan for you to talk and, and, and have the ability to talk through, all right, well, then um, if this, then that, and different scenarios. So often it's the certified financial planner then that is collaborating with the attorney to say, okay, it seems like the trust makes sense. So that's the process you'd, you'd use to determine if you... But if this is a show to talk about beneficiaries, uh-huh. the, my least favorite beneficiary for a 401k <laughs> is the trust. And so when I thought you were going to say the government. Uh, well, that too, well, sure. I mean, if it's a jump ball, it, it, do you tip it to the government or to the kids or to you know the church or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. So it is important to make sure if, if you have the beneficiary set up. And then there is there is something if you have a beneficiary and your beneficiary is your spouse, the spouse has a choice to make when they're inheriting that four hundred one k. Yeah, because yeah. that the spouse can take that four hundred one k. And just add it to her, his or her existing IRA, or the spouse can put that in what's called a beneficiary distribution IRA, or we shorten that to BDA IRA. So you can put it in that. The when you say how would I make that decision? Well, if you're under sixty, you'd probably put that into a BDA IRA. Because then I can have access to those dollars without the 10% penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm a spouse, I don't have a required minimum distribution, required, easy for me to say, <laughs> uh, to take. I don't have to take money out of that that IRA um, like, yeah. uh, like a different beneficiary of that. 401k would. All right. So we've we've hit that complicated topic before. We'll do that again. Let's go back to the original question. Do you have to have a beneficiary on your 401k? No, you don't. No, you don't. Should you? Yeah, you should. Yeah, I'm going to say you. yes. I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say... I think the question was pertaining to, like, am I am I even allowed to open one if I don't list someone? Yeah, you, you are allowed to, but you shouldn't. You should list mm-hmm. a beneficiary, and right? If you, and if you don't know who... I mean, you, you might say, I have no family. I have no living relatives whatsoever. Pick your favorite charity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Especially for a 401k. Absolutely. If you never paid tax on it before you made the contributions, if it's been growing without being taxed and it can go to someone that you care about and maybe that someone is a charitable organization and they pay no tax, that's a fantastic way to maximize the economic benefit to, to an organization with the dollars that you didn't end up needing in retirement. What if, what if you didn't list someone and, 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 or let's say a family member passed away and you find out they never listed a beneficiary. Well, trust me, you'll wake up. If you go through that experience, you'll say, okay, I'm going to double check all my beneficiaries, which your CFP should be helping you with through comprehensive financial planning. But how does that process work? If you don't list a beneficiary, then what, what happens to that money? It goes to Indiana Unclaimed. What happens? I mean, essentially, it's a part of your estate, right? Yep. And it, it's going to get liquidated faster than anybody wants it to, which means, remember, if no, if the owner of that 401k never paid the tax on the dollars inside the account, someone's going to, and it's going to be the beneficiaries. And if it's running through the estate, then it will be the will that determines who those beneficiaries are. 
after any creditors or any other obligations have been uh, satisfied, and you'll get you know you'll get the leftovers afterwards. If it runs through the estate and the estate pays the tax, you're in the thirty-seven percent tax bracket after the first thirteen thousand. So it it is very uh, it could be very expensive from a tax perspective to say, hey, 40% of that money could be gone Mm -hmm. if I don't handle it correctly. So this is where we say, oh, always, 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 always pick a beneficiary. You don't have to be totally confident in that beneficiary selection. Have someone named and and then let that person kind of know what your wishes are. I would have all of us do a beneficiary audit. Go through and make sure you've got the right beneficiaries assigned to the right accounts. All right, we've got more coming up on The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. This is Wise Money with Corhorn Financial Group. How frequently should you refinance? If it makes sense, should you refinance every few months, every six months? Should you do it again? Ah, great question from a fan of the show we're going to hit right now. This is The Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Thanks for being here. My name is Mike Bernard with me in the KFG studios. Kevin Corhorn and Josh Gregory. Every episode of the Wise Money Show is on podcast. Wherever you listen, just search the Wise Money Show and subscribe or follow us there. Rate the program. Leave comments there as well. We appreciate all that. Uh, We're into uh, questions from fans of the show, and uh, you can submit those several different ways uh, through the YouTube channel. Got a few questions here. Linda reached out and, okay, let me make sure I get, I put the right, emphasis on this here. What are your thoughts on refinancing a second time? Now, you could read that in saying, what are your thoughts on refinancing question a second time, like she's been asking multiple times. I don't (laughs) think that's the case. I don't think that's the case, although uh, we do have lots of questions in the queue here. But I think the question is, it's a good one. What are your thoughts on refinancing again? And we've done full shows as to, okay, well, when would you consider refinancing and when would you not? And and so a couple of rules of thumb, and I'll just share, and, and you know, rules of thumb are, uh, well, we've done a full show on that as well. Like, <laughs> so don't, don't trust them. But just as a guide, okay, work with your certified financial planner, see if it makes sense in your overall financial situation. But if you're still going to have a mortgage, that same mortgage, five years from now, sure, probably refinance. If you're saving at least one percent, so if both of those are true, yeah, probably refinance. Now, got to look at closing costs. Got to look at the size of your loan. Got to look at PMI if you have that. You've got to look at all sorts of things. But those are the two barometers. Are you still going to have that mortgage in five years, or will you sell the house? Will you pay the thing off? Will you refinance again? Who knows? Um, and will you be saving at least one percent? Uh, those are the two barometers. How'd you arrive at five years as your, just as kind of a rule of thumb? I did some geeky math a while back. Obviously it depends on how big the loan is. Okay. I thought maybe you were going to say that the average homeowner, you know, leaves after within five years or something. Well, I had actually looked at this. When we, we hit this topic in one of our very early episodes of Wise Money and I did some research and, I don't know, sort of landed on three to five years, but I like five years. Yeah, I think how big the loan is and really what are the costs involved. But I, I, I'm thinking of a couple of things coming off of what we've come off of. If you had forbearance and you've got some 
issues, whether you have to pay a big chunk now or you're going to have to, it's been added to the back of your loan. You want to look at that and understand it. Always, whether it's a second or third refinance, a refinance is is uh, preferable to a foreclosure for sure. Yeah. And so this is where you, when you're looking at your, your liability structure, um, if you, it, because statistically, you're not going to be in your home in five years. I think the, the average homeowner doesn't stay in a home more than five years. And you say, well, I'm, you know, I, I live someplace where everyone is uh, above average and, yeah. and, and Don't good, call me average. good looking or whatever that yeah. uh, show is. But, but so you, you would want to know how long am I going to stay? But sometimes, again, there are a number of factors that you'd want to consider, Linda. I, to me, the, the biggest factor, though, likely if you said I'm just right down the middle and I am an average person, then I would say, all right, can you save on your monthly payment enough to justify doing it? Because there justify are the costs. Yeah, because right. there mm-hmm. are costs that are that are going to come with that deal. And the other thing that I would encourage you to think about is to do a little bit of shopping. Have your CFP help you with that because not all mortgages or lending institutions are created equally. Yes. The, the, the trick, though, with what you just said, Kevin, mm-hmm. if you're paying down your loan and then you refinance back to a 30-year loan, mm-hmm. the payment will be smaller. Like, so don't 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 confuse yourself into thinking, well, I've, I'm going to restretch this this loan out over a certain period of time and it saved me money and therefore this was a smart idea. It might, mm-hmm. but if you're, it, it'll, it could save you monthly, but end up costing you more over the lifetime. Because if you refinance to a 15 year loan three years ago, you got two years, you got uh, 12 years left. Okay. If you then refinance to another 15 year loan, you don't have 12 years left. You've got 15 now. Mm-hmm. So your payment will be smaller. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the point though is every refinance has. You know, sometimes different goals or or motivations attached to it. There are some folks who they are refinancing, and yes, they might stretch it out from 12 back to 15 years left on the mortgage, but it's because cash flow is a concern. Those folks might, you know, lean towards even taking a longer loan than that, and they're just trying to solve a certain problem. More often, it seems like people are trying to refinance to get the interest rate lower to you know, reduce the amount of, of interest bleed every month and shave some years off of when they could be potentially debt free. You know, they're accelerating uh, the, the payment schedule. But at, at the end of the day, it's often one of the, the first questions that we ask after we know what the real costs are. And that's hard to get sometimes. Um, you know, uh, it, it can be a little bit vague and you really want to get these things in writing from the lenders that you're considering. So you can actually crunch the numbers with your certified financial planner and determine what is the break even on this deal. Yep. If if you were to free up a certain amount of cash flow or you were to, um, you know, accelerate your, your debt payments, no matter what, when you refinance, there is a, a hit in some way. Like you kind of take a step backwards, often by uh, rolling the the cost of the loan into the new balance, and you're hoping that you're going to be able to accelerate and catch back up to where you would have been. And the the question is, well, how long is it going to take you to get to that point? Yeah. Because there is some sort of a break even point. If if you sell the house, if you refinance again in a short amount of time or whatever, it, it's possible that you've not reached that break even point. 
and um, and the deal was not actually as good as just staying with a loan that you would have had. That's what your certified financial planner's job is to evaluate all of these types of decisions. But I wouldn't be afraid of refinancing again if that second refinance on its own merits is a good idea. It's your certified financial planner's job through the financial plan to determine whether or not it is a good idea. 100%. Uh, next question comes from Bill, emailed in. He said, longtime listener, first-time emailer. Thank you for that. My wife and I are married filing jointly, and we're just under the income limit for funding Roth IRAs. However, we have a lot of uncertainties in store for this new year, 2022. Potential pay bombs, potentially selling some company stock, etc. It is it allowed to do a backdoor Roth IRA contribution conversion even if we don't end up reaching the income limit for the Roth IRAs when calculating taxes at the end of the year? Uh, if so, and then he shares his strategy, want a dollar cost average, blah, blah, blah. So can you do a, so so basically, let me let me just level the playing field. What he's talking about, back, backdoor Roth IRA conversion. So if you fund an IRA, put money into an IRA, you have a choice of whether you deduct it or not. And there's income limits and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes you don't really have that choice. That choice is made for you. Okay. So you can throw money into the IRA. And if you're not deducting it. And you're talking about a traditional IRA. Traditional IRA. Mm -hmm. You can then convert it and move that into a Roth IRA. You would consider doing that if you make too much, your adjusted gross income is at a level where you can't contribute directly to a Roth IRA. And that's what Bill's question is and comment. I think it's for married filing jointly for 2022, I think it's 204,000. Um, and I'm saying that like I, oh, I wonder. No, I actually just looked at it. Um, so 200. <laughs> 200 me, yeah, I think I think it's going to be 204 this year. 204 to 214. Um, adjusted gross income. Now that's 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 paycheck money. That's capital gains. That's that's all of it. So what he's saying here is. I could get a bonus. We could sell some stock. We could have some other income. Yeah, all of that goes into that adjusted gross income limit. If it's married family jointly above 204, you're limited. Well, right? essentially, yeah, if your income goes too high, you have no choice. If you want to contribute to a Roth, it has to be a two-step process where you first contribute to a traditional IRA and then convert it. And you know, you really want that traditional IRA to have been empty before you contributed to it. Yeah. Otherwise, you you may end up paying some some taxes that you didn't intend. But I I read his question as well. What if I think my income's going to go there, and so I do the backdoor Roth idea, but it never actually materializes. I I don't actually reach that level of income. You can still do a backdoor yeah. Roth IRA. It's going to have the exact same effect on your tax return. As long as, again, that IRA was empty when you contributed to it. And as long as the as Congress doesn't change these rules. That's right. right? Which That's they've a, been kicking around for one. forever. And yeah, so. you would get a nasty surprise if there were money, if there's money in your traditional IRA and then you put your after-tax contribution into that traditional IRA and then you said, hey, I just want to slice that off the top because mm -hmm. you don't, it's, it's not, uh, it's not. It doesn't slice that way. It slices up and down. So if if I put six thousand into a traditional IRA and I already had six thousand in there, and then I said, hey, I'm going to convert 
6000 the 6000 I just put in, you're going to pay tax on half the money that mm-hmm. went over to your Roth IRA. Yeah, you don't get to pick which dollars are coming back out of the IRA and going into the Roth. You're basically taking a cross-section mm-hmm. of all the money in there, and some of that money maybe has never been taxed before, and it will get taxed when you do the conversion. So again, Roth conversions, we talk about them so often that you might think, ah, it's just something easy, familiar. No, you you really want to make sure that you're working with a professional to do it right and consider the tax ramifications, whether or not it's a strategy that makes sense this year or maybe could make sense more in the future. Yeah. Now, the strategy that I told you, you know, I, I excluded from the question because it was more just added and but it's good to good perspective. And I, I think he's spot on with this. Well, the you know, the reason why I want to know this now, even though I don't know what my income will be for the rest of the year, is I'd like to be contributing automatically every month to try to capture some of the volatility that I'm just going to say is likely ahead for 2022. OK, um, and do this what's called dollar cost averaging. So even though I don't know where my income is going to be for the rest of the year, I'd like to start funding this now. And to Josh, what you said, unless the IRS changes the rules, yeah, you can fund a backdoor. Uh, you can fund an IRA, not deduct it, and move it over to the Roth. You can do that, no problem. The last thing that I would point out here, but you got to answer that question. If you you put cash into your traditional IRA, six thousand, I convert that six thousand to my Roth IRA. If I if it's still in cash in my Roth IRA. Then within the Roth IRA, I set the mechanism up. Automatic purchases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Keep in mind, if you did that in January, say, um, and then come, you know, end of the year, you left your employer and you rolled your 401k into your IRA, even though that IRA was empty when you did this, you had IRA, pre-tax IRA dollars by the end of the year, and it gets really Mm -hmm. messy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So be aware it's a calendar year sort of thing. Great question though, Bill. I think I think the strategy is on point. Hopefully you're working with a CFP that's helping you with that. So, all right. Thanks for the questions, everyone. That's all the time we have for today. On behalf of Josh Gregory, Kevin Corhorn, all of us at, uh, at KFG, have a great weekend. We'll see you next Saturday for the Wise Money Show with Corhorn Financial Group. Securities offered through Silver Oak Securities, member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through KFG Wealth Management, LLC. Doing business as Corhorn Financial Group. KFG Wealth Management, LLC and Silver Oak Securities Incorporated companies are unaffiliated. Well, let's start with trust. And then we can get into the question, then we can get into action items. Yeah, so, and we're going to share opinions. I trust that you will. That was dumb. <laughs> that was a dad yeah, joke. That was great. Yes. <laughs> All right. I trust that you will. Yeah. <laughs> well, I trusted you before you called me dumb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>